Welcome to today's episode on Life in the Front Office. I'm your host, Jake Hirschman, along with my co-host, Pat Gallagher. And we're fortunate to be joined by Jens Wyden, Chief Revenue Officer of the Rose Bowl Operating Company today, and excited to talk to Jens. Um, Jens, you know, I will get into it, his journey and his path. He, uh, he worked for Pat at one point in time, but I actually worked for Jens at one point in time. So pretty cool to just kind of come full circle through, uh, you know, having the three of us on here with this conversation. Um, Jens, I would just start with you. You know, you didn't you didn't uh, come straight out of high school to the Rose Bowl operating company. You had to have some sort of journey and path to get there. Uh, can you just give us a, a quick GPS to how you got there? Yeah, for sure. And first off, thanks, Jake and Pat, for having me. I think, as you mentioned, this is a this is a cool panel for me because I've worked with both you guys before and. What I think Pat will agree is uh, at some point, Pat and I will probably both work for you, Jake, because if we were doing what you're doing at, at, at our respective ages, we, uh, we, we would be in a much different, maybe better spot now. So thanks for having me, though. Um, and yeah, so my journey is, uh, is unique. I, I like to say I'm not the best informational interview because usually about 10 minutes in, they, they start stop taking notes and they're like, how is this path something that I could ever follow? But I think one of the things that's interesting about my path is it's unique, just like everybody else's. But um, so my path started out, uh, I grew up in a small town, about 6,000 people in northern Idaho called Sandpoint. Um, loved, was, a, was big into sports, was a, I thought I was a pretty good baseball player and I was pretty good by northern Idaho standards, but uh, didn't make it to the MLB, but uh, ended up going to, uh, was a walk-on at uh, St. Mary's College up in the Bay Area. So that's really what brought me into California and I think really got me started on my on my career path. Um, but after graduating from school in uh, St. Mary's, I had, I was a communication major. Um, if you'd asked me what I wanted to do other than have fun in college, it was get into TV. So I was thinking, you know, sports TV, sports anchor, TV anchor, that kind of stuff. Uh, until I found out yet where you had to move and the tiny little market that I'd have to go back to, to start out in that career. And that wasn't really what I was into. Um, and so uh, another thing I was passionate about was golf. So uh, when I was in college, actually my senior year, I started working for American golf, uh, which is a golf course management company that actually I work with now here at the Rose bowl on our 36 hole golf course. Um, but just started working in the pro shop on Sunday nights, closing down the thing. I'd like to think that, uh, the GM who was there, he's a Gonzaga guy, but he still hired a St. Mary's guy. And, uh, he, he didn't work on Sundays, which was nice because I never burned the place down. And usually sometimes when the boss never sees you or hears about you, they, they think you're great. So I think that that's what sort of got me off on my way. Um, but uh, so worked uh, in the pro shop up at Tilden Park right above uh, Cal Berkeley for about a year and a half. And when I graduated, he, he said, hey, if you're, if you don't want to go move across the country and be on TV, I'd love to put you on our management program. So I started in the management program for American Golf, uh, managed the pro shop there, moved around a five different courses over the course of two and a half, three years. Uh, but by the end of it was uh, a GM at a 36 hole golf course, actually 27 hole golf course called Monarch Bay, which is right by the Oakland airport. And I was, uh, I was the GM there. So a lot of responsibility, good title, very young. And they have you do a little bit of everything, a lot of hats. You were, I was, I was HR, I was finance. I was anything and everything. I was open up the pro shop. Uh, so did that for a few years. Um, and then from there, that's sort of the theme you'll see in my hops. Uh, you know, I, I had a, a counterpart that, that I worked with at American Golf who had left and he'd gone to 24-Hour Fitness's corporate office over in San Ramon um, and got a call from Doug, who was a great friend and still is, and said, hey, you know, we got this opportunity in our entertainment marketing department. 
and I think you'd be good for it. And so I went and I interviewed for it and I ended up getting the position and, and worked for American golf. Um, I did two things there. I was, uh, I worked on their entertainment marketing, which at the time was, was branding, uh, TV shows like the biggest loser with 24 hour branding. We also have had and have, um, celebrity athletes like, uh, Andre Agassi and Shaquille O'Neal and Lance Armstrong, where we had signature clubs and I would manage those relationships. Um, and then sort of dabble a little bit in online marketing. We were one of the first gym chains to offer online memberships, you know, going to a club and buying a membership was very much like buying a used car. You'd go in and they'd have a piece of paper and they'd scribble a number down and it was pretty intimidating. And so American golf was one of the first that, that sort of got their feet wet on that. And, uh, and I, uh, and I really enjoyed it. I was, you know, once again, loved working in golf and it was really just this cool opportunity that got me to take the next step. Um, and really love working at 24 fitness. It was a great company, big company, but even to this day, the biggest company that I worked for with thousands of employees, um, and was really happy there. Um, but then got a call from, uh, someone that, that Pat and I know really well, uh, Sarah Hunt, uh, and, uh, Sarah's sister actually worked at 24 hour fitness with me, Allie. And I got to know Sarah just in a, on a, on a personal level. And Sarah called me and she goes, Hey, my sister's going to kill me, but we have a job at the giants. I think you should interview for so I didn't tell her sister about it until after the fact, and I got it. Um, but I uh, ended up going um, to interview and, and interviewed with Pat and Sarah and Stephen and the team with Giants Enterprises. And somehow I fooled them into hiring me over there and, and joined the team there. And uh, really, for me, it was, um, it was probably one of the, the best moments in my career. One of the, I would call it one, one of the luckiest for me because there's just so many people out there that just love being in the sports industry. And as far as I'm concerned, I got a dream job. You know, I got to work under the best and brightest people that were really pushing the envelope when it comes to utilizing a sports property and the name and the building. They were and are still light years ahead of, uh, of a lot of people out there. Uh, and I was able to go there and learn under some of the best folks. And that's really what I tried to do the entire time I was there is just, you know, be, be helpful wherever I could. Uh, as Pat will tell you, the team of Giants Enterprises was sort of the agency arm of the, of the Giants and they got they got the cool stuff, the weird stuff and everything in between. And they were told to go try and figure it out. And together, you know, we did that for a long time. And, uh, and then to make my, my intro here really short, I'll, I'll take those eight years of the giants and, and make them that concise until you ask me questions about them. Um, but then my step here, uh, to the Rose Bowl also involved Pat. Um, I think I was actually probably Pat's last hire with the giants. So I don't, I don't know if that's why they got him out of there or if that was a good thing, but Pat <laughs> retired after hiring me and, uh, and then got into consulting and he was consulting for our team down here at the Rose bowl and, um, and, and really suggested that they create my position or something like that. And then when it, uh, when they did, he, uh, he recommended that I interview for it. And, uh, and I came down here and it was a good move for me. My, my wife's family's down here and we had a, my son Parker was one at the time. We now have two kids. Um, and, uh, and I was lucky enough to get the job down here. Uh, about seven and a half years ago and uh, have loved it. It's been a great fit for me and my family. And for me personally, I was able to take tons of what I learned at all my previous stops, most notably with Giants Enterprises and apply it here to a place that's iconic, that's amazing, that has been around for 98 years, um, but still is very re relevant to different generations of people. Um, and so that's really what we've, we're trying to do here is make sure that this building is around for another hundred years. So I would say that the, the, you know, the Rose Bowl, most people have heard of the Rose Bowl. It's, I mean, I guess next to the Roman Coliseum, it may be the most famous venue in the world. It, 
90, 98 years. But what a lot of people don't know is we're talking about the Rose Bowl operating company. This the Rose Bowl itself, the venue is a 98 year old stadium, municipal stadium. There's not many of those around, but you sit in the middle of a huge piece of property with, you know, maybe you can explain all the different businesses that you're in. And I, when I left the Giants, I did some, I did some consulting work for Daryl Dunn and the Rose Bowl operating committee, trying to figure out how to, how do you create a business or how do you sustain a business uh, when you have a venue that, you know, you have the Tournament of Roses one day a year, you have, uh, you know, occasional football, but you, uh, you know, you have 365 days to deal with. So, Jens, we'll, we'll just do the top line of what are all the, what are all the activities um, that you do. And the reason why they hired you is because you can sell and you can figure out how to sell. So, um, Give us a give us a brief of all the different activities that that you know keep keep the Rose Bowl humming. Yeah, so I think the easiest way, if you haven't been to the Rose Bowl, you got to go. It's, if, you, if there's a place you want to go, there's a handful of them, and and I would put the Rose Bowl there. But if you haven't been here, it's it's really like Los Angeles's Central Park. You know, we're 200 plus acres of beautiful green land. Uh, we have a 30 we have two 18 hole golf courses that are managed by American Golf called Brookside. Um, and it's not just a golf course and one of the busiest on the West Coast doing a close to 150,000 rounds a year, but it is the best tailgating in the world, right? So that, that, those, that's our parking lot for games. So when you come and you tailgate at a UCLA game or at a Rose Bowl game, you're throwing a football around underneath an oak tree next to a putting green. It's, it's just beautiful. It's out of this world. Um, and so we have a golf course that is a golf course 340 days of the year. And then the other days it's a parking lot. Um, we also... Um, and uh, I'll, I'll steal a, a line from the athletic director at Texas. He calls R&D research and duplicate. So we did a little bit of research and duplicate on some music festival stuff that was going on up in the Bay Area and uh, out in Indio and partnered with Golden Voice. And we do a music festival on our golf course. We do a lot of enterprise events where we have community programming on on the golf course. So I'm a golfer. I love golf. That place is beautiful because it's a golf course, but it only stays. But and so we need to respect it as a golf course, but we still continue to look and, and use it in, in other ways. So we have our golf course division. Um, we also have our, um, we have a sponsorship partnership with IMG Learfield. So IMG Learfield handles all of our sponsorship rights for um, everything permanent here at the stadium. So the easiest way to think about the operating company is we're the landlord and we have tenants. So our tenants inside the stadium are UCLA, the Tournament of Roses, AG or Live Nation for music programming. So we have, uh, and soccer programming through a multitude of partners. So we're really the, we're the landlord of the building. And so our job is to, is to monetize it, but also be a great landlord and make sure that these, these teams that come and play or whether it's UCLA or the teams that play in the Rose bowl game, feel like it's theirs. You know, one of the unique things at the Rose bowl is each locker room is identical like for like, and that's just the theme with the Rose bowl game. You want every team to come and They're the home team. There is no away team. There's two home teams. And we like to think that we try and make our tenants and everybody that comes in this programming here feel that way because Pat is right. We are as aggressive as anybody because, you know, we're owned by the city of Pasadena and our job is, is first and foremost to make sure that we make as much money as possible here so that we can sustain this national historic landmark. And so we go out and we do these things, not just because we want to do them. We do them because they make net revenues that we put back in the capital projects and those type of things. Um, but in addition to those um, groups, we have a, um, we have a, uh, a foundation called Legacy that fundraises um, 
fundraises dollars for our building led by Deedon, who I know you guys have had on before. Deedon has done an amazing job. He came from the university side and has fundraised tens of millions of dollars for a building, right? He's going up against people that are fundraising for a hospital and he's fundraising for a sports stadium and he's doing an amazing job. And we, we wouldn't be here without Deedon because in a hundred year old building, you've got hundred year old problems that you need to fix. Um, we have a, a group, our enterprise event division that is very much in line with the stuff that Pat and his team were doing with Giants Enterprises that does all the sort of ancillary events here. Uh, when I got here and it says nothing to do with me, it just has to do with the structure we put around it. You know, we were doing about three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars net a year on those enterprise events. And this past year we did close to two million. So that's become a huge, huge revenue stream for us that is the equivalent of, you know, four or five concerts or ancillary events. Um, and our team led by Monique Rodriguez has, has really led the way in that, um, you know, later on, I think you guys mentioned, we were going to talk about some stuff around COVID, but I'm really proud of our team. I think we've done better than, than anybody I've heard of, of, of really pivoting during this pandemic. And, um, we're doing some pretty amazing stuff on that enterprise event side. Um, we also have a premium seating division. So when we built the pavilion, uh, in 2013, it was finished. Um, we have 54 brand new luxury suites and club seats and loge boxes. And we have a partnership with legends, which is the Yankees and the Cowboys joint partnership and their team sells our premium seating upstairs. So we're very involved and, and, uh, and locks up with them. Uh, and then we have sort of marquee events. You know, we have our flea market, our flea market. A lot of people, you know, maybe laugh at a flea market, but our flea market's not your, not your average flea market. We do, you know, Pre-pandemic, we were doing 20,000 people a, uh, a month for one day. It's the second Sunday of every month, and we get 20,000 people here. And it's 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 LA celebrity flea market. You, you'll see more celebrities here than you will on Rodeo Drive. Um, and so, you know, I think that's just a flavoring of of everything that we we try and do. You know, we are, um, you know, we like to say that we're we're a modern elder, right? We're we're older, and you know, we're 100 years old, and we're proud of that. But we have, you know, our, our Twitter following, if we, anything we post on Twitter, we get about 5,000 comments from BTS fans because that's where they like to hang out. And this is the place where BTS played. And we're really proud of that. We're not embarrassed by that. We want to make sure that 100 years from now, we're not just talking about this place being the granddaddy of them all for football, but that you have people talking about going to BTS shows and One Direction shows. And, and the music side has really become, and that's where I'll finish is, Music's really what has been a game changer for us. Um, you know, when we went through the renovation and built the pavilion and did some improvements to the stadium, we were hoping that music would come back and music would be huge for us. And it, it came back tenfold. You know, we are an iconic play. We're, you know, we're a bucket list play for a lot of these artists and our acoustics and the visuals and everything around these shows, you know, more, <laughs> they usually are filming their DVD here and, talking about it for, for months and years to come. And so we're really proud of that. And we think that we know that's going to be part of our future long-term. Jens, one of, one of the uh, moments in my young uh, career that I'll never forget is three nights in a row of a One Direction concert, listening to all the young girls scream. And that's something that will never leave. You just, you understand like the environment in which a live event can produce is unbelievable, right? And that's ultimately what you guys are trying to put on. And, you know, it's funny, you, after you've worked there and you understand kind of where things are and what things look like. And then all of a sudden you see a commercial on TV and you're like, wait, I think that's where that is. And, and all this, you know, you guys are using the property in so many different ways in which uh, there's movies, there's TV shows, there's, you know, different commercials that people just use the land and the setting and the scenery for as well. Right. 
Yeah, no, that's one of our big things. You know, uh, you know, film shoots and and those type of things in LA are it's pretty common common practice around here. Um, but yeah, our team led by our event management group does an amazing job. And yeah, if you the one way you'll know you're watching the Rose Bowl, this is the hint is if you see our pink seats in the background, you usually know it's the Rose Bowl. Our pink seats have a great story. We our board of directors. Um, they like to be Switzerland as much as possible. I, I noted we like to have no home team or away team for the Rose Bowl game. You know, the color of the Rose Bowl game is very red. UCLA does not like red very much for good reason. They are, their, their rival right down the road is red. And so the story goes, and I, this was pre-me, was we needed to replace our seats a couple decades ago, and they couldn't decide on the color of the seats. And so one of our board members raised his hand, and he held up his tie, and he said, well, what about this color? And it was like sort of a pink almost like an Alka-Seltzer type of color and nobody hated it. I don't know if anybody loved it, but nobody hated it. So we, we did 85,000 seats in pink. So you always know it's a rose a commercial with the Rose Bowl on it. If it has pink seats. You know, you're, you're the thing that people haven't been there. You no, know, that first of all, the city of Pasadena, which is, you know, in the suburbs of LA, gorgeous, beautiful city, but, but you sit in this, you know, a couple hundred acres in the middle of this thing called the Arroyo, which are a lot of, you know, multi-million dollar homes, which is wonderful, but it, it also um, means that there's only certain types of events that, you, that, that are appropriate. So, so you really, you have a neighbor, you have neighbors to think about. What's that like? Yeah, no, it's a good question. I, I personally, and I've always, you know, you can get upset about the setting and the challenges that it brings, but I, when it, when it comes down to it, our setting is our biggest asset, hands down, right? So there's challenges that come with that for sure. Um, but I'll give you an, an advantage before I go into some of the challenges. We talked about BTS. BTS is, is it's, it's out of this world. You know, they're doing millions of dollars a day in merch and, you know, and it's, you know, you know, women and, and girls that are from age, you know, 10 all the way up to 40, right? But at BTS shows, I was amazed by the amount of Thousands of, of teenagers were dropped off in the Arroyo by their parents at nine o'clock in the morning for a show that was that night at seven o'clock at night. And not one person dropped them off thinking that they weren't safe. Right. So I, we have to embrace our setting first off and that, you know, we go out and get a lot of events that other places maybe can't get because of our setting. Um, when it comes to the challenges, we just try and be a good neighbor. You know, uh, Daryl, who I know you guys have had on. Daryl Daryl has a lot of good lines, but the first one he, he leads with with our neighbors is thou can't surprise. And that's what we try and do is we try and over-communicate with our neighbors. We do monthly neighborhood meetings. Our neighbors, we have an email database of over 200,000 emails that's mostly made up of neighbors and people that live in Pasadena that just want to know what's going on, right? It, when you bought your house, you knew the Rose Bowl was there, but it still stings when you're coming home at seven o'clock at night to have dinner with your friends or you invited people over and you didn't know there was a concert going on and now they're stuck in this traffic. That's nobody can, nobody deals with that. Right. So our job is to try and educate people as much as possible about what's going on down here. Cause usually if you let them know what's going on, they can work around it a little bit. Um, and then, you know, we try and facilitate for them. So, you know, we get them parking passes and things that try and make their lives a little bit easier because when they sell their house, yes, they list that it's right next to the iconic Rose bowl, but we don't want them to sell their house because we're annoying them and we're surprising them and stuff. So I think, the biggest thing is just communication, right? Because our events are impactful. Can we minimize those impacts? For sure. You know, we spend a lot of money to protect neighborhoods, to make sure that nobody's parking in front of people's houses and that, you know, we spend, you know, the artists will tell you that we spend a lot of time talking about sound at concerts, you know, and we try and find ways to aim the sound in a direction that's not blowing the doors off our neighbors. 
Um, and so I, in my, in my experience, neighbors and everybody really reacts to if you're one, if you're open and honest with them and, and if you do your best to try and give them all the information and put it at their fingertips, whether they want it or not, or grab it, that's another thing, but at least you can say, you know, we tried to get you that info. And I think that's, you know, our neighborhood, um, you know, we've gone through a lot of different phases. Um, but you know, we're in a very good spot right now with our neighbors. And a lot of that credit belongs to Daryl and our team here that work really hard with trying to, you know, to build that trust that they know that we're telling them the truth. So we're not trying to get something over on them because ultimately we really are a neighbor, right? We have a really big house. We have a hundred year old house in this neighborhood, but we got to treat it like a neighbor. We can't treat it like we're more important than them and that they just need to deal with our stuff. And it's part of the gig, you know, that's, that's not neighborly. That's, that's the true definition of working as a community. You know, I think uh, a lot of stadiums get plopped down somewhere. That's, you know, Pat, you think about uh, where, you know, AT and well, I should say Oracle Park now is, and, you know, you kind of create everything around it, but everything was already created around it. And then it was, it was there. And you think about how to include the community. Jens, you know, COVID obviously presented a, an interesting uh, dilemma for the live event uh, community. And as you thought about how to generate dollars, as you mentioned earlier, and do things differently out of the norm, um, you can't have 20,000 people, you know, for a flea market as, as you might would, you know, normally. What are some of the things that you guys were able to execute and, and execute well? And are there some things that you're, you know, going to look at and go, yeah, I think that can stay? Yeah, like everybody, you know, the reaction of a stadium or an operating group around a pandemic is a lot like an individual's reaction, right? You go through all the stages. Like first, you're like, how can I help? What's wrong? Like, where, where can I where can I be of assistance, right? Because we all have a skill set and we all know that we can apply that to other things. So I think it, when it first happened, that's what we did is we said, where can we help, right? So we reached out to all of our partners, whether it's premium seat holders or sponsors or even neighbors. So going back to how do we work with our neighbors? And we, we did things like, how can we help you? We have access to large scale cleaning supplies and food and things that if you think back to March, you know, toilet paper, you know, could we, can we work with our janitorial companies to try and get just the things that people need at this time, right? So we used our acumen and our relationships to try and help. Um, and even more so, you know, we were a testing site for the county. So we had people going through here testing for over a month. We still have over 50 FEMA trailers here that, FEMA dropped down that we're hosting first responders that are exposed. So we are still in the midst of helping. But I would say that was our first reaction was how do we help? Um, but then very quickly, because Pat's right, I'm a, like him, I'm a sales guy. Um, we very quickly got into how can we, how can we continue our business? And, and less so for how much money can we make off this? More so for how can we keep our people employed? How can we continue to show that we're doing our best to try and you know, cover as much of the, our bond debt as possible? And so one of the things that became apparent was that um, normal events probably weren't coming back. You know, at first we did our budget and we thought UCLA football might come back, at, you know, at 50% capacity in August and that we might get our enterprise events and private events back, you know, around this time of the year. Well, you know, holiday parties will be back and everybody will love to see each other. Well, that's just not happening. And we, we saw that pretty early. Um, so we doubled down on the drive-in business. It was something that we, you know, we felt comfortable, you know, people can sort of control their environment. Um, so we worked with a local group here, um, actually called a, a Kilburn group that was working on a project where they were, they were pitching, um, drive through uh, theater chains, like your, um, you know, your, you name it, uh, AMC, whoever else to try and put up these screens in their parking lots of their 
of their malls because malls are closed all over the country and at least do drive-in programming and be able to keep your people employed and do that. Um, and so I reached out to him and said, hey, you put up your screen in our, in our parking lot. You can do site visits and show, up, show it off to all of the different drive-in theaters or the, the movie theaters. We want to show it to all the big studios in town, all the groups in town, and that's what we did. And so we had a lot of people come out here. We showed them how we could utilize our stadium bathrooms and sessions and things that are wonderful on an event day but can actually work well for this. Um, and, and we booked our first event with Tribeca, and Tribeca came out here, and they did a month-long run. And that sort of kicked off our summer. And since then, we've been really lucky in that one thing's led to another, and we've had partnerships with Disney and Fox Searchlight and Netflix, and, and we're really doing a good job of trying to get different types of groups through, everything from the stuff I just talked about to, you know, we had a big weekend of comedy shows last week. Uh, we're doing drive-in concerts. And amazingly, it works really well with our neighbors, right? Normally, our neighbors, the biggest challenge they have is our sound. Well, this is all sound through FM transmission in people's cars. And so we've been very lucky. It's been led by our events team. As I mentioned, Monique, who's our director of sales, is, has amazed me through this whole process with the way that she sort of attacked this. And um, we're getting very close to the enterprise event revenues that we've gotten in the past couple of years just so far in this year. And so, you know, I think it's just an example of, you know, trying to utilize what you have. And, you know, and we think that this may last afterwards, right? So we're also making decisions on this in this business long term. We're not just saying until things get back to normal, then we're just going to go back to normal. You know, there could be a large subset of people that don't feel okay for a few years, right? But if you're going to have a holiday party, there's no way you can have a holiday party and, and have 10% of your people not feel safe there. you got to find the lowest common denominator when safety is in, in the consideration. So we think that some of this stuff that we're doing right now might be the norm, especially for the corporate stuff for a little bit longer than most people think. So um, all the credit to our team of event managers and salespeople that have gone out there and have done an amazing job. But yeah, no, we've, uh, we, we've, uh, we've been very lucky that we have a great site for it. You know, there's very few people in this business who can say that they're part of a historical landmark. And you can't think about the Rose Bowl without thinking of, you know, the granddaddy of them all. I mean, which is, you know, and, and Keith Jackson. And you actually got a chance to get to know Keith Jackson. He's he's no longer with us. But um, just tell us one quick uh, Keith Jackson story. Yeah, so Keith, Keith what was, and I, I still say is amazing. So Keith is, you know, he's the voice of college football, probably no matter who you ask. And um, and for us, yeah, especially late in his career, we really got to know Pat or Keith really well. And um, and he was just an, he was an amazing person in that, you know, he really, you know, he he believed the stadium was almost a person, right? He personified it was, you know, he he felt it breathe, it had a breath and it, it was here and it was almost a witness to some of the most amazing stuff in the, in the history of, you know, college sports, college football. Um, and so it was really neat to walk around this building with him and really see the things that, you know, that he really got into, right. You'd walk around and the way that the seats in the morning pop and they make noise because they're the bleacher seats are metal. And when they expand, they make a noise, right. The things that you take for granted that you walk around that you sort of just think are the cool part of this building are the things that he sort of, you know, he felt were, were part of why it's alive and why it's there. Right. And, um, and it's also interesting when you talk to him in that, you know, it's amazing that, you know, this game, the Rose bowl game wasn't originally played at the Rose bowl stadium. It was played in other parts of Pasadena and then it outgrew the wooden bleachers they built for it. 
And the Tournament of Roses in the city of Pasadena had an amazing vision and foresight to say, hey, we need to build a stadium, and they picked this area, right? And it used to be almost a city dump. There weren't many of those neighbors we were just talking about around here. It wasn't a place where there was lots of houses. Um, but they decided to drop the stadium there. So the game and the game time and all these things weren't really figured out, but they dropped the stadium. And it's like one of those examples of, of sometimes things just work out because they're meant to work out. Now, in the beginning of the third quarter, the sun sets over the San Gabriels and it is the most iconic look. You know, most, you know, Keith would always say that, you know, football isn't always known for its stadiums, right? Baseball is. Baseball gets a lot more of that. And you have your Wrigley's and your Fenway's and in Pittsburgh, you have the beautiful bridge in the back and they really embrace the area that they're in. Football, for the most part, is usually what's happening on the gridiron, right? And domes and you don't see out into the cityscape. And the Rose Bowl is the opposite of that. The setting of the Rose Bowl and underneath the San Gabriels in the Arroyo Seco is what makes the Rose Bowl the Rose Bowl. And I think that's one of the things that I, I took from Pat is, you know, as, as a broadcaster, somebody that has to put people here, right? You know, he grew up in a town where he used to like put an antenna up on top of a tree so that he could get a broadcast from a hundred miles away so he could listen to the Rose Bowl game broadcast. So that's what, that's where he came from. Right. And so in his mind, everything was a radio broadcast. You got to tell people the setting and where it was and what was going on. Like they were listening on the radio. And I think that was um, part of the magic of, of watching a game that he was broadcasting because you could see exactly what was going on, but you wanted to hear how he talked about it. And I think, uh, to me, that's, you know, as a, as a salesperson or even just an executive, I think you can take something from that, right? Not just the words that you say, but how do you, how do you outline those words? How do, you, how do you talk about a mission for your team so that, you know, that vision is something that they believe in? It's not just, okay, that's what we're supposed to do. Let's go. He really made you believe in the Rose Bowl, whether you had your eyes closed or open. It was pretty amazing. He was, you know, when you heard his voice, when you heard the voice of Keith Jackson, um, no matter where you were, you knew you knew you were at a big event. You knew he was bringing a big event to you. Very few broadcasters sort of have that legacy, but you know, the granddaddy of them all, the Rose Bowl, and you're trying to figure out how to make the the Rose Bowl 98 years later uh, survive and prosper. So you know, you've done it. You've done an incredibly great job there, and uh, we'll just look forward to the things that you do. As you, as we all sort of come out of this pandemic, because uh, it's been, uh, you've been very resourceful as to how you've done it, and and your, your, you know, your organization has done the same thing. So, uh, like I said earlier, there's not that many 98-year-old municipal facilities, stadiums out there. Uh, you've well, made, you've brought one yeah, no. into life. Yeah, no, I, well, first off, Pat, I, I owe a lot to you and, and even and Jake, you know, I think you learned something from everybody you work with. Um, but the joke is, you know, we're in Los Angeles, we have some of the best plastic, plastic surgeons around. So at 98 years old, that, that's what you normally do is you just go get the odometer turned back, right? <laughs> um, but but it, I think we have, you know, we've done our, our renovation projects, but um, but our setting is still, it's just so amazing. And, you know, we're, we're very excited for the next 100 years because Cause you're right. You know, we were, I, Pat and I were talking uh, a few days ago when we were talking actually about, um, you know, the world cup, cause we are uh, one of the, the buildings that's really into, uh, you know, we, we submitted to, to host the world cup when it's in Mexico, the U S and Canada. And, um, and we have a great world cup history with ho hosting the men's and women's um, world cup uh, in our history. And one of the questions was actually on, 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 
uh, lead certification and how green is your building and can you talk about your recycling and we have some led by our ops team some amazing work going on on that front but one of the points that was made is that you know using a building that's 98 years old rather than using a bunch of brand new buildings that you built just for the purpose of hosting this is probably the best lead certification story that's out there right because you're reusing something you're using um, an asset that has been relevant for 98 years. It's been relevant for different reasons. It used to be football. Now it's music and other things, but if it can still be relevant for the World Cup, what an amazing story for us, but the World Cup and the Olympics and all these other groups that we're looking to, to come through here and make us stay relevant. Jen, speaking, speaking of big events, you know, I think it's appropriate we, we wrap up this episode with a little bit of rapid fire for you because, you know, you're your journey, as you mentioned earlier, is unique. And um, I got to go back to, you were a Southpaw, right? I mean, you had you had a chance, let's just say, compared to those righties out there. Um, what was your go-to pitch? I had a curveball. They, they said I had a major league curveball and I had a not even minor league fastball. So my curveball was probably my best pitch. But if you ask the guys that I quote unquote played with in college, my, my best pitch was probably my my shag throw back from the outfield because I didn't play much, but it was, it was good. It, you know, it, honestly, my mom gets the most credit of anybody in my entire career. Cause I remember I was in senior high school and I had scholarship offers to some D, D2 schools um, that were a little bit smaller. And I had an academic scholarship to St. Mary's and I could walk on there and baseball had always been my thing. And my mom was great. She, uh, she sat me down one night and she was always, always my biggest cheerleader. You can do whatever you want. And she goes, you know, she goes, I don't think you're going to play baseball for the rest of your life. I'd go to St. Mary's. So Trudy gets all the credit for most of my career. Cause I think she put me on the right path and, and not playing tons at St. Mary's actually was one of the best things for me. You know, it was a little humility and understanding that you got to fit in and find what you're good at. Um, and, you know, college does something different for everybody. But I think for me, that was probably one of the biggest things I learned at St. Mary's. No, absolutely. And, and I know we have a, a little bit of a similar baseball path in that sense, but you know, what's the one biggest thing that you've learned from all of these events coming through, you know, you're dealing with uh, people of the likes of Terry Donahue and Troy Aikman and Eminem and Jay-Z and all, you know, all, all the people that try and get into this business because they think it's cool and whatnot, but what's the one underrated lesson that you've learned with dealing across these events and, and the people that run it? Uh, the one underlying thing that I, I've learned at all my stops is that I think we're very lucky to be in a field where people, for the most part, are very passionate about what they do. And that doesn't matter what the event is, right? It's just, it's, it's really amazing to go to work every day with people that just love working here, right? And love working in this industry. And there's something magic about that, right? Companies that make cogs and other things spend millions and millions of dollars for management companies to teach them how to have great culture and to get people to buy in on the mission, and we're very lucky that our what we do, our product, is something that gets people jazzed up every day. They wake up and they want to, they want to get you know get after it. And I think as long as we don't mess that up and we give people that work with us the opportunity to sort of go after that and feel like they control their own destiny and that we're helping them have fun, but also work really really hard and be here, you know, tonight until nine o'clock because we got an event going on and other like, you know, if we can not mess that up and make people feel like they're part of something pretty special. Um, then I think we're, we're doing our job right. And I think that's what, what makes me excited about, about doing this. You mentioned you like golf. Uh, you have to have a favorite club. 
Oh, a favorite golf club, like favorite place to yeah, play. Yeah, I mean, are are you good on the greens? Are you are you all about you know driving no. for show, not putting for dough? I mean, come on. No, I'm 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 relatively average at everything equally. If the pros could be as average, consistently average as I am at golf, they'd be they'd be an amazing pro. But yeah, no, I didn't really start playing golf until maybe like high school. So you can tell I'm a baseball player out there. But I have a good time with it, and it's uh, it's cool to have a, a golf course here that. Um, that we operate and manage it's, you know, golf is really picking up in COVID. Our, our golf revenues are through the roof because people are really finding that golf is a COVID friendly sport that everybody can get out and socially distance. And it's been wonderful. You know, I, I, I welcome it because I think, you know, it's a magical thing. You know, when I worked at Tilden park, I was always amazed that in the middle of the Bay area, a mom could drop her 11 year old kid off at the golf course for eight hours and ask a college kid who was working in the shop me to, get them out with some adults if I can. And she was cool. She was just gone, right? You don't do that at a public park. You don't do that anywhere else, but on a golf course, you do that. And to me, that's old school. That's free rent, free roam. And I, I think we need to see more of it. And so I think golf's pretty magic. So anything I can do to sort of help it out, even just through our 36 holes here, I'm, I'm all for. No, that's great. Last question for you since Pat's on, uh, you're a Gallagher ism. You have a Gallagher ism. <laughs> yeah, I got, I got tons of Gallagher. So Probably one of my favorite was uh, when Pat announced he was retiring. I, I had to get one of one of the going away lunches with Pat, and they were hard because everybody wanted to have lunch with Pat. I think Pat probably gained 100 pounds his last month for the Giants because he probably had nine lunches a day, right? But I got my I, I got my going away lunch, and we went across the street, and our waiter came up to us, who I think ended up Pat. I think it was like Orlando Cepeda's like godson or something, or his son was our waiter. We ended up finding out afterwards. But the best part was he came up to us and he asked us what we did. And Pat very quickly goes, we're in sales. And the guy's like, all right, cool. And walked away. And I go, really, man, you could drop the giants. You could drop anything you want. He goes, no. He goes, we're all in sales. I don't care if you're in accounting or if you're, he goes, we're all in sales because we're selling the dream, whatever it is, sort of like what we were just talking about. You got to get everybody on your team amped out about, about what they're doing. And, and that was the best was that we found out like, Pat wouldn't go any further until we found out it was, I think it was Orlando Cepeda's son or something. And then we started talking ball, but that's probably one of my favorites is we're in sales. So I, I dropped that one all the time. That's great. Hey, we're, we're in the fun business, you know, we're in the fun business. That's right. And uh, not, a, nobody really needs it, but everybody wants it. Yeah, no, the, the other one would be uh, artistic success. I, that one is the one I would use to describe one of my first events with Pat was the, uh, Brian Boitano and Barry Manilow skating spectacular. Yeah, in December. Outside. In December on the field at AT&T Park. Yeah, it was a good time. And, yeah. uh, and so, Pat, it, after the event, we worked really hard on this event. Hard because it, was, it needed some help. And we got through it. And, uh, and somebody asked if it would, how to go. And part t- Pat said it was an artistic success. So I use that one every once in a while. Not as, hopefully not all the time. Well, unfortunately, we had a few financial successes too, but that wasn't one of them. Hey, they're sort of like kids, right, Pat? There's some that are artistic successes and there's others that pay the bills. So it's all right. Pat, hold on. Before we wrap this up, is there a difference between a creative success and an artistic success? No, they're the same thing. What that means, that means is you lost money and you were trying to figure out something good to say about it. That's what it, that's what it is. You know, a creative success means you learn something. Maybe you made a few people happy, um, but you didn't make any money on it, which is if when you're in the event business, 
uh, you know, they don't all work out. You just have to keep, uh, you have to keep going and keep them from being fatal, which, uh, so we never had any, any fatal, any fatalities or a fatal event. They were all sort yeah. of creative successes. I think so. And I, I actually think that's going to be one of the things that's going to be a challenge for groups coming out of this is being able to hold on to that entrepreneurial spirit, right? Because right now it's, everybody's just so scared to swing and miss. And so how do you go out and swing for singles and doubles right now? Maybe you're not swinging for a home run, but get people used to swinging again. And that's, you know, that's what we found with our drive-in business. We've been very lucky there, but you know, Pat's right. You know, those artistic successes are the ones that you learn a bunch from. And the next time you have an opportunity, you make a ton of money on it because you have the experience there. But I, I, I hope our industry comes back and has the ability to sort of keep swinging. Yeah. You know as well as anybody, if you swing for the singles and the doubles, you'll hit the home runs. But if you try and swing for the home runs, you'll strike out. So, um, now this is full circle, Jake. Only when Jens is pitching for St. Mary's, you hit home runs when you're trying to hit a single, right? <laughs> Not when Jake is throwing submarine for Ohio. That's true. That's true. Well, Jens, really appreciate uh, your time, your insights, your advice. Uh, really enjoyed it having you on. And uh, Pat, as always, enjoy it.